0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Today, chapters 20 and 21. And now, chapter 20, The Flight in the Heather, The Rocks. Sometimes we walked, sometimes ran, and as it drew on to morning, walked ever the less and ran the more. Though upon its face that country appeared to be a desert, yet there were huts and houses of the people, of which we must have passed more than twenty, hidden in quiet places in the hills. When we came to one of these, Alan would leave me in the way, and go himself, and rap upon the side of the house, and speak a while at the window with some sleeper awakened. This was to pass the news, which, in that country, was so much of a duty that Alan must pause to attend to it even while fleeing for his life, and so well attended to by others, that in more than half of the houses where we called they had heard already of the murder." In the others, as well as I could make out, standing back at a distance and hearing a strange tongue, the news was received with more of consternation than surprise. For all our hurry, day began to come in while we were still far from any shelter. It found us in a prodigious valley, strewn with rocks and where ran a foaming river. Wild mountains stood around it. There grew there neither grass nor trees, and I have sometimes thought since then that it may have been the valley called Glencoe, "'where the massacre was in the time of King William. "'But for the details of our itinerary "'I am all to seek our way lined now by short cuts, "'now by great detours, "'our pace being so hurried, "'our time of journeying usually by night, "'and the names of such places as I asked and heard "'being in the Gaelic tongue and the more easily forgotten. "'The first peep of morning, then, "'showed us this horrible place, "'and I could see Alan knit his brow.' "'This is no fit place for you and me,' he said. "'This is a place they're bound to watch.' And with that he ran harder than ever down to the water-side, in a part where the river was split in two among three rocks. It went through with a horrid thundering that made my belly quake, and there hung over the linn a little mist of spray. Alan looked neither to the right nor to the left, but jumped clean upon the middle rock and fell there on his hands and knees to check himself, for that rock was small.' "'and he might have pitched over on the far side. "'I had scarce time to measure the distance "'or to understand the peril before I had followed him, "'and he had caught and stopped me. "'So there we stood, side by side, "'upon a small rock slippery with spray, "'a far broader leap in front of us, "'and the river dinning upon all sides. "'When I saw where I was, "'there came upon me a deadly sickness of fear, "'and I put my hand over my eyes. Alan shook me. "'I saw he was speaking.' But the roaring of the falls and the trouble of my mind prevented me from hearing, only I saw his face was red with anger, and that he stamped upon the rock. The same look showed me the water raging by, and the mist hanging in the air, and with that I covered my eyes again and shuddered. The next minute Alan had set the brandy bottle to my lips and forced me to drink about a gill, which sent the blood into my head again. Then, putting his hands to his mouth and his mouth to my ear, he shouted, hang or drown, and turning his back upon me, leaped over the further branch of the stream and landed safe. I was now alone upon the rock, which gave me the more room. The brandy was singing in my ears. I had this good example fresh before me, and just wit enough to see that if I did not leap at once, I should never leap at all. I bent low on my knees and flung myself forth with that kind of anger of despair that had sometimes stood me instead of courage. Sure enough, it was but my hands that reached the full length. These slipped, caught again, slipped again, and I was slittering back into the linn when Alan seized me, first by the hair, then by the collar, and with a great strain dragged me to safety. Never a word he said, but set off running again for his life, and I must stagger to my feet and run after him. I had been weary before, but now I was sick and bruised and partly drunken with the brandy. "'I kept stumbling as I ran. "'I had a stitch that came near to overmaster me, "'and when at last Alan paused under a great rock "'that stood there among a number of others, "'it was none too soon a stop for David Balfour. "'A great rock, I have said, "'but by rights it was two rocks "'leaning together at the top, "'both some twenty feet high, "'and at the first sight, inaccessible. "'Even Alan, though you may say "'he had as good as four hands, "'failed twice in an attempt to climb them and it was only at the third trial, and then by standing on my shoulders and leaping up with such force as I thought must have broken my collarbone that he secured a lodgment. Once there he let down his leather belt, and with the aid of that and a pair of shallow footholds in the rock I scrambled up beside him. Then I saw why we had come there, for the two rocks, being both somewhat hollow on the top and sloping one to the other, made a kind of dish or saucer where as many as three or four men might have lain hidden. All this while Alan had not said a word, and had run climbed with such a savage, silent frenzy of hurry, that I knew he was in mortal fear of some miscarriage. Even now that we were on the rock he said nothing, nor so much as relaxed the frowning look upon his face, but clapped flat down, and keeping only one eye above the edge of our place of shelter, scouted all round the compass. The dawn had come quite clear, and we could see the stony sides of the valley, and its bottom, which was bestrewed with rocks and the river, which went from one side to another, and made white falls, but nowhere the smoke of a house, nor any living creature, but some eagles screaming round a cliff. And then, at last, Alan smiled. "'Aye,' said he, "'now we have a chance.' And then looking at me with some amusement, "'You're not very good at jumping,' said he. At this I suppose I colored with mortification, for he added at once, "'Hoot's!' Small blame to you. To be feared of a thing, and yet to do it, is what makes the best kind of a man. And then there was water there, and water's a thing that daunts even me. No, no, said Alan. It's not you that's to blame. It's me. I asked him why. Why, said he, I've proved myself a gomeral this night. For first of all, I take a wrong road, and that in my own country have happened, so that the day has caught us where we should never have been, and thanks to that, WE LIE HERE IN SOME DANGER AND MERE DISCOMFORT, AND NEXT, WHICH IS THE WORST OF THE TWO, FOR A MAN THAT HAS BEEN SO MUCH AMONG THE HEATHER as MYSELF. I COME WITHOUT A WATER BOTTLE, AND HERE WE LIE FOR A LONG SUMMER'S DAY WITH NOTHING BUT NEAT SPIRIT. YOU MAY THINK THAT A SMALL MATTER, BUT BEFORE IT COMES NIGHT, DAVID, YOU'LL GIVE ME NEWS OF IT. I WAS ANXIOUS TO REDEEM MY CHARACTER, AND OFFERED IF HE WOULD POUR OUT THE BRANDY, TO RUN DOWN AND FILL THE BOTTLE AT THE RIVER. "'I would not waste a good spirit, either,' says he. "'It's been a good friend to you this night. "'Or, in my poor opinion, you would still be cocking on yon stone. "'And what's more,' says he, "'you may have observed, you that's a man of so much penetration, "'that Alan Brick Stewart was perhaps walking quicker than his ordinary.' "'You!' I cried. "'You were running fit to burst.' "'Was I so?' said he. "'Well, then, you may depend upon it. "'There was not time to be lost. "'And now here's enough said.' Gang you to your sleep, lad, and I'll watch. Accordingly, I lay down to sleep. A little peaty earth had drifted in between the top of the two rocks, and some bracken grew there, to be a bed to me. The last thing I heard was still the crying of the eagles. I dare say it would be nine in the morning when I was roughly awakened, and found Alan's hand pressed over my mouth. Hush! he whispered. You were snoring. Well, said I, surprised at his anxious and dark face, and why not? "'he peered over the edge of the rock "'and signed me to do the like. "'It was now high day, "'cloudless and very hot. "'The valley was as clear as in a picture. "'About half a mile up, "'the water was a camp of redcoats. "'A big fire blazed in their midst, "'at which some were cooking, "'and nearby, on the top of a rock "'about as high as ours, "'there stood a sentry, "'with the sun sparkling on his arms. "'All the way down along the riverside "'were posted other sentries. "'Here, near together, there— widely or scattered, some planted like the first, on places of command, some on the ground level, and marching and counter marching, so as to meet halfway. Higher up the glen, where the ground was more open, the chain of posts was continued by horse soldiers, whom we could see in the distance riding to and fro. Lower down the infantry continued, but as the stream was suddenly swelled by the confluence of a considerable burn, they were more widely set, and only watched the fords and stepping stones. "'I took but one look at them and ducked again into my place. "'It was strange indeed to see this valley, "'which had lain so solitary in the hour of dawn, "'bristling with arms and dotted with the red coats and breeches. "'You see,' said Alan, "'this was what I was afraid of, Davy, "'that they would watch the burn side. "'They began to come in about two hours ago, "'and, man, but you're a grand hand at sleeping. "'We're in a narrow place. "'If they get up the sides of the hill, "'they could easily spy us with a glass.' "'But if they'll only keep in the foot of the valley, "'we'll do yet. "'The posts are thinner down the water, "'and come night we'll try our hand at slipping by them.' "'And what are we to do till night?' I asked. "'Lie here,' he says. "'And bursel. "'That's one good Scotch word, Bursal. "'Was indeed the most of the story of the day "'that we now had to pass. "'You'll remember that we lay on the bare top of a rock "'like scones upon a girdle. "'The sun beat upon us cruelly.' The rock grew so heated a man could scarce endure the touch of it, and the little patch of earth and fern which kept cooler was only large enough for one at a time. We took turn about to lie on the naked rock, which was indeed like the position of that saint that was martyred on the gridiron, and it ran in my mind how strange it was that in the same climate and at only a few days' distance I should have suffered so cruelly, first from cold upon my island, and now from heat upon this rock. All the while we had no water. "'only raw brandy for a drink, "'which was worse than nothing. "'But we kept the bottle as cool as we could, "'burying it in the earth, "'and got some relief by bathing our chests and temples. "'The soldiers kept stirring all day "'in the bottom of the valley, "'now changing guard, "'now in patrolling parties hunting among the rocks. "'These lay round in so great a number "'that to look for men among them "'was like looking for a needle in a bottle of hay. "'And being so hopeless a task, "'it was gone about with the less care.' Yet we could see the soldiers pike their bayonets among the heather, which sent a cold thrill into my vitals, and they would sometimes hang about our rock, so that we scarce dared to breathe. It was in this way that I first heard the right English speech. One fellow, as he went by, actually clapping his hand upon the sunny face of the rock on which we lay, and plucking it off again with an oath, "'I tell you, it's art,' says he. And I was amazed at the clipping tones and the odd sing-song in which he spoke.' and no less at that strange trick of dropping out the letter H. To be sure, I had heard Ransom, but he had taken his ways from all sorts of people, and spoke so imperfectly at the best, that I set down the most of it to childishness. My surprise was all the greater to hear that manner of speaking in the mouth of a grown man, and indeed I have never grown used to it, nor yet altogether with the English grammar, as perhaps a very critical eye might here and there spy out even in these memoirs. The tediousness and pain of these hours upon the rock grew only the greater as the day went on, the rock getting still the hotter, and the sun fiercer. There were giddiness and sickness and sharp pangs like rheumatism to be supported. I minded then, and I have often minded since, on the lines in our Scotch psalm, The moon by night thee shall not spite, nor yet the sun by day. And indeed it was only by God's blessing that we were neither of a sun-smitten. At last, about two, it was beyond men's bearing, and there was now temptation to resist, as well as pain to Thole. For the sun being now got a little into the west, there came a patch of shade on the east side of the rock, which was the side shelter from the soldiers. "'Well, as well one death as another,' said Alan, and slipped over the edge, and dropped on the ground on the shadowy side. I followed him at once, and instantly fell all my length, so weak was I and so giddy with that long exposure.' Here, then, we lay for an hour or two, aching from head to foot, as weak as water, and lying quite visible to the eye of any soldier who should have strolled that way. None came, however, all passing by on the other side, so that our rock continued to be our shield, even in this new position. Presently we began again to get a little strength, and as the soldiers were now lying closer along the riverside, Alan proposed that we should try a start. I was by this time afraid of but one thing in the world— and that was to be set back upon that rock. Anything else was welcome to me. So we got ourselves at once in marching order, and began to slip from rock to rock, one after the other, now crawling flat upon our bellies in the shade, now making a run for it, heart in mouth. The soldiers, having searched this side of the valley after a fashion, and being perhaps somewhat sleepy with the sultriness of the afternoon, had now laid by much of their vigilance, and stood dozing at their posts or only kept a lookout along the banks of the river, so that in this way, keeping down the valley, and at the same time towards the mountains, we drew steadily away from their neighborhood. But the business was the most wearing i had ever taken part in. A man had need of a hundred eyes in every part of him, to keep concealed in that uneven country, and within cry of so many and scattered sentries. When we must pass an open place, quickness was not all, but a swift judgment not only of the lie of the whole country, but of the solidity of every stone on which we must set foot. For the afternoon was now fallen so breathless that the rolling of a pebble sounded abroad like a pistol shot, and would start the echo calling among the hills and cliffs. By sundown we had made some distance, even by our slow rate of progress, though to be sure the sentry on the rock was still plainly in our view. But now we came on something that put all fears out of season, and that was a deep, rushing torrent of water that tore down, in that part, to join the Glen River. At the sight of this, we cast ourselves on the ground and plunged head and shoulders in the water, and I cannot tell which was the more pleasant, the great shock as the cool stream went over us, or the greed with which we drank of it. We lay there, for the banks hit us, drank again and again, bathed our chests, let our wrists trail on the running water till they ached with the chill, and at last, being wonderfully renewed, we got out the meal-bag and made Drammack in the iron pan. This— though it is but cold water mingled with oatmeal, yet makes a good enough dish for a hungry man, and when there are no means of making fire, or, as in our case, good reason for not making one, it is the chief stand-by of those who have taken to the heather. As soon as the shadow of the night had fallen, we set forth again, at first with the same caution, but presently with more boldness, standing our full height, and stepping out at a good pace of walking. The way was very intricate, "'lying up the steep sides of mountains and along the brows of cliffs. "'Clouds had come in with the sunset, and the night was dark and cool, "'so that I walked without much fatigue, "'but in continual fear of falling and rolling down the mountains, "'and with no guess at our direction. "'The moon rose at last and found us still on the road. "'It was in its last quarter and was long beset with clouds, "'but after a while shone out and showed me many dark heads of mountains "'and was reflected far underneath us on the narrow arm of a sea-lock.' At this sight we both paused. I struck with wonder to find myself so high, and walking, as it seemed to me, upon clouds, Alan to make sure of his direction. Seemingly he was well pleased, and he must certainly have judged us out of earshot of all our enemies, for throughout the rest of the night march he beguiled the way with whistling of many tunes, warlike, merry, plaintive, real tunes that made the foot go faster, tunes of my own south country that made me fain to be home from my adventures, and all these on the great dark desert mountains making company upon the way we'll return with chapter 21 right after these sponsor messages and now chapter 21 of robert Louis stevenson's kidnapped the flight in the heather the hue of karenikig early as day comes in the beginning of july it was still dark when we reached our destination a cleft in the head of a great mountain with a water running through the midst and upon the one hand a shallow cave in a rock. Birches grew there in a thin, pretty wood, which a little farther on was changed into a wood of pines. The barn was full of trout, the wood of cusha doves. On the open side of the mountain beyond, whops would be always whistling, and cuckoos were plentiful. From the mouth of the cleft we looked down upon a part of Mémore, and on the sea-lock that divides that country from Appen, "'and this from so great a height "'as made it my continual wonder and pleasure "'just to sit and watch them. "'The name of the cleft was the hue of Koronekig, "'and although from its height and being so near upon the sea "'it was often beset with clouds, "'yet it was on the whole a pleasant place, "'and the five days we lived in it went happily. "'We slept in the cave, "'making our bed of heather bushes which we cut for that purpose, "'and covering ourselves with Alan's greatcoat. "'There was a low concealed place in a turning of the glen,' where we were so bold as to make fire, so that we could warm ourselves when the clouds set in, and cook hot porridge, and grill the little trouts that we caught with our hands under the stones and overhanging banks of the burn. This was indeed our chief pleasure and business, and not only to save our meal against worse times, but with a rivalry that much amused us, we spent a great part of our days at the waterside, stripped to the waist, and groping about, or, as they say, guddling for these fish." THE LARGEST WE GOT MIGHT HAVE BEEN A QUARTER OF A POUND, BUT THEY WERE OF GOOD FLESH AND FLAVOR, AND WHEN BOILED UPON THE COALS, LACKED ONLY A LITTLE SALT, TO BE DELICIOUS. IN ANY BYTIME ALLEN MUST TEACH ME TO USE MY SWORD, FOR MY IGNORANCE HAD MUCH DISTRESSED HIM, AND I THINK BESIDES, AS I HAD SOMETIMES THE UPPER HAND OF HIM IN THE FISHING, HE WAS NOT SORRY TO TURN TO AN EXERCISE WHERE HE HAD SO MUCH THE UPPER HAND OF ME. HE MADE IT SOMEWHAT MORE OF A PAIN THAN NEED HAVE BEEN. "'for he stormed at me all through the lessons "'in a very violent manner of scolding, "'and he would push me so close "'that I had made sure he must run me through the body. "'I was often tempted to turn tail, "'but held my ground for all that "'and got some profit of my lessons. "'If it was but to stand on guard "'with an assured countenance, "'which is often all that is required, "'so that I could never in the least please my teacher, "'I was not altogether displeased with myself. "'In the meanwhile, "'you are not to suppose that we neglected "'our chief business, which was to get away.' "'It will be many a long day,' Alan said to me on our first morning, "'before the redcoats think upon seeking Koronekic. "'So now we must get word sent to James, "'and he must find the Siller for us.' "'And how shall we send that word?' says I. "'We are here in a desert place, which we dare not leave, "'and unless ye get the fowls of the air to be your messengers, "'I see not what we shall be able to do.' "'I?' said Alan. "'You're men of small contrivance, David.' "'Thereupon he fell in a muse. "'Looking in the embers of the fire, "'and presently, getting a piece of wood, "'he fashioned it in a cross, "'the four ends of which he blackened on the coals. "'Then he looked at me a little shyly. "'Could you lend me my button?' says he. "'It seems a strange thing to ask a gift again, "'but I own I am lathe to cut another.' "'I gave him the button, "'whereupon he strung it on a strip of his greatcoat, "'which he had used to bind the cross, "'and tying in a little sprig of birch and another of fur, "'he looked upon his work with satisfaction.' "'Now,' said he, "'there's a little Clatchin, "'what's called a hamlet in English, "'not very far from Neckig, "'and has the name of Coalista Cohen. "'Living there are many friends of mine "'whom I could trust with my life, "'and some that I'm not just so sure of. "'You see, David, "'there will be money set upon our heads. "'James himself is to set money on them, "'and as far as the Campbells, "'they would never spare Siller "'where there was a steward to be hurt. "'I would go down to Coalista Cohen-whatever,' "'and trust my life into these people's hands, "'as lightly as I would trust another with my glove. "'But being so,' said I. "'Being so,' said he. "'I would like that they didn't see me. "'There's bad folk everywhere, "'and what's far worse, weak folk. "'So when it comes dark again, "'I will steal down into that clackin' "'and set this cross that I've been making "'in the window of a good friend of mine, "'John Breck McCall, a Bowman of Appens. "'With all my heart,' says I, "'and if he finds it, what is he to think?' "'Well,' says Alan, "'I wish he was a man of more penetration, "'but for my troth I'm afraid "'he will make little enough of it. "'But this is what I have in my mind. "'This cross is something in the nature "'of a cross-tary, a fiery cross, "'which is the signal of gathering in our clans. "'Yet he will know well enough "'the clan is not to rise, "'for there it is standing in his window, "'and no word with it. "'So he will say to himself, "'This clan is not to rise, "'but there is something.' "'Then he will see my button, and that was Duncan Stewart's. "'And then he'll say to himself, "'The son of Duncan is in the heather and has need of me.' "'Well,' said I, "'it may be. "'But even supposing so, there's a good deal of heather "'between here and the Forth, "'And that is very true,' says Alan. "'But then John Breck will see the sprig of birch "'and the sprig of pine, and he'll say to himself, "'If he's a man of any penetration at all. "'Alan will be lying in a wood which is both of pines and birches.' "'Then he will think to himself, "'That's not so very rife hereabout. "'Then he will come and give us a look-up at Korinikik. "'And if he does not, David, "'the devil may fly away with him, for what I care, "'for he will not be worth the salt to his porridge.' "'Amen,' said I, drolling with him a little. "'You're very ingenious. "'But would it not be simpler for you to write him a few words in black and white?' "'And that's an excellent observe, Mr. Balfour of Shaw's,' says Alan, drolling with me. "'and it would certainly be much simpler for me to write to him. "'But it would be a sore job for John Brick to read it. "'He would have to go to the school for two, three years, "'and it's possible we might be wearied waiting on him.' "'So that night, Alan carried down his fiery cross "'and set it in the bowman's window. "'He was troubled when he came back, "'for the dogs had barked, "'and the folk run out from their houses, "'and he thought he'd heard a clatter of arms "'and seen a redcoat come to one of the doors. "'On all accounts, we laid the next day "'in the borders of the wood and kept a close lookout.' so that if it was John Breck that came, we might be ready to guide him, and if it was the Redcoats, we would have time to get away. About noon a man was to be spied, straggling up the open side of the mountain in the sun, and looking round him as he came, from under his hand. No sooner had Alan seen him than he whistled. The man turned and came a little towards us. Then Alan would give another peep, and the man would come still nearer, and so by the sound of whistling he was guided to the spot where we lay. He was a ragged, wild, bearded man, about forty, grossly disfigured with the smallpox, and looked both dull and savage. Although his English was very bad and broken, and yet Alan, in consideration of me, would suffer him to speak no Gaelic. Perhaps the strange language made him appear more backward than he really was, but I thought he had little good will to serve us, and what he had was the child of terror. Alan would have had him carry a message to James, but the bowman would hear of no message. "'She was forget it,' he said in a screaming voice, "'and would either have a letter or wash his hands of us. "'I thought Alan would be grappled at that, "'but we lacked the means of writing in that desert. "'But he was a man of more resources than I knew, "'searched the wood until he found the quill of a cusha dove, "'which he shaped into a pen, "'made himself a kind of ink with gunpowder from his horn "'and water from the running stream, "'and tearing a corner from his French military commission, "'which he carried in his pocket, "'like a talisman to keep him from the gallows.' "'He sat down and wrote as follows. "'Dear kinsman, "'please send the money by the bearer "'to the place he kens of. "'Your affectionate cousin, A.S. "'This he entrusted to the bowman, "'who promised to make what manner of speed "'he best could, and carried it off "'with him down the hill. "'He was three full days gone, "'but about five in the evening of the third day "'we heard a whistling in the wood, "'which Alan answered, and presently the bowman "'came up the waterside, looking for us, "'right and left.' He seemed less sulky than before, and indeed he was no doubt well pleased to have got to the end of such a dangerous commission. He gave us the news of the country, that it was alive with redcoats, that arms were being found, and poor folk brought in trouble daily, and that James and some of his servants were already clapped in prison at Fort William, under strong suspicion of complicity. It seemed to his noise on all sides that Alan Breckett fired the shot, and there was a bill issued for both him and me, with one hundred pounds reward." "'This was all as bad as could be, "'and the little note the bowman had carried us from Mrs. Stewart was of miserable sadness. "'In it she besought Alan not to let himself be captured, "'assuring him, if he fell in the hands of the troops, "'both he and James were no better than dead. "'The money she had sent was all that she could beg or borrow, "'and she prayed heaven we could be doing with it. "'Lastly, she said, "'she enclosed us one of the bills in which we were described. "'This we looked upon with great curiosity, "'and not a little fear.' partly as a man may look in a mirror, partly as he might look into the barrel of an enemy's gun to judge if it be truly aimed. Allen was advertised as a small, marked, active man of thirty-five, or thereby, dressed in a feathered hat, a French sidecoat of blue with silver buttons, and lace a great deal tarnished, a red waistcoat and breeches of black shag. And I, as a tall, strong lad of about eighteen, wearing an old blue coat, very ragged, an old Highland bonnet, a long homespun waistcoat, blue breeches, his legs bare, low country shoes, wanting the toes, speaks like a lowlander, and has no beard. Alan was well enough pleased to see his finery so fully remembered and set down, only when he came to the word tarnish he looked upon his lace like one a little mortified. As for myself, I thought I cut a miserable figure in the bill, and yet was well enough pleased too, for since I had changed those rags, the description ceased to be a danger and become a source of safety allen said i you should change your clothes, nay trth said All. I have no others. A fine sight I'd be if I went back to France in a bonnet. This put a second reflection to my mind that if I were to separate from Allen and his tell-tale clothes, I should be safe against arrest. It might go openly about my business. Nor was this all for suppose I was arrested when I was alone, there was little against me." "'But suppose I was taken in company with the reputed murderer, "'my case would begin to be grave. "'For generosity's sake, I dare not speak my mind upon this head. "'But I thought of it, nonetheless. "'I thought of it all the more, too, "'when the bowman brought out a green purse with four guineas in gold "'and the best part of another in small change. "'True, it was more than I had. "'But then Alan, with less than five guineas, "'had to get as far as France. "'I, with my less than two, not beyond Queensferry, "'so that taking things in their proportion, "'Alan's society was not only a peril to my life, "'but a burden on my purse. "'But there was no thought of the sword "'in the honest head of my companion. "'He believed he was serving, "'helping, and protecting me. "'And what could I do but hold my peace "'and chafe and take my chance of it? "'It's little enough,' said Alan, "'putting the purse in his pocket, "'but it'll do my business. "'And now, John Breck, "'if you will hand me over my button, "'this gentleman and me will be for taking the road.' But the bowman, after feeling about in a hairy purse that hung in front of him in the Highland manner, though he wore otherwise the lowland habit, with sea-trousers, began to roll his eyes strangely, and at last said, "Ere Ansel will lost it,' meaning he thought he had lost it. "'What?' cried Alan. "'You'll lose my button. That was my father's before me. Now I will tell you what is in my mind, John Breck. It is in my mind this is the worst day's work that you ever did since you was born.' And as Alan spoke, "'He set his hands on his knees "'and looked at the bowman "'with a smiling mouth "'and that dancing light in his eyes "'that meant mischief to his enemies. "'Perhaps the bowman was honest enough. "'Perhaps he had meant to cheat "'and then finding himself alone "'with two of us in a desert place, "'cast back to honesty as being safer. "'At least, and all at once, "'he seemed to find that button, "'and then he handed it to Alan. "'Well, it is a good thing "'for the honor of the McCalls,' "'said Alan, and then to me. "'Here is my button back again.' and I thank you for parting with it, which is of a piece with all your friendships to me. Then he took the warmest party to the bowman. For, says he, you have done very well by me, and set your neck at a venture, and I will always give you the name of a good man. Lastly, the bowman took himself off by one way, and Alan and I struck into another, to resume our flight. Thanks for joining us for chapters 20 and 21 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. We've had some reviews lately for 1001 Stories for the Road, and I wanted to share some with you. The first one, five stars. This is great storytelling. The best, from Ed358, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Love these. John, thank you for the great stories. I absolutely loved Mr. Standfast. Confession, I couldn't wait to hear the final two chapters and ended up reading them myself. I did listen to them from you a week or two later. Great stories. I'm a full-time mom of five children, and I don't read as much as I would like to. Your podcasts are wonderful, and I've gotten to enjoy so many great authors and revisit classics I read back in school. Keep up the great work. P.S. Have you ever read The Scarlet Pimpernel? I don't know if it's one you would be able to do. Public domain? But it's a good one. Thanks again. That one from A.N.D.I. Mize, Apple Podcast U.S. Just to let you know, I had not read The Scarlet Pimpernel. I checked it out, it's a great story, it's a great adventure and love story, and we had just finished Anne of Green Gables at 1001 Greatest Love Stories, and we have now started The Scarlet Pimpernel. That's 1001 Greatest Love Stories. It, it is a great story, and it reads well. Thanks for your suggestion. And this one, Great Tales, well read, five stars. Most, if not all, the selections are also on LibriVox.org, but this guy is a much better reader than 97% of LibriVox contributors, so his versions will almost always be better. And he's gathered together an excellent collection. Enjoying immensely right now, his reading of John Buchan's 1915 landmark political thriller, The 39 Steps, down from Delhi Sid, Apple Podcast, Canada. And thank you for that review, Delhi Sid. And I thought The 39 Steps was a great story. It was a lot of fun to read. And this one, amazing, five stars, and then all kinds of emojis about one, two, three, four, five, six lines of emojis, down from Mason, Apple Podcast, US. Thank you, Mason. And this one, VR, five stars. Repetitive tasks can be boring, but I can't wait to get started on them so I can plug into your storytelling. Reminds me of the intensity of reading the Louis L'Amour books as a youngster. Thank you, sir. I Cutter, Apple Podcast. Thank you, I Cutter. And Kidnapped, five stars. Gonna be good. Great reading, John. Market Pop, Apple Podcast. Thank you, Market Pop. Thank you very much, everyone, for taking the time to send us these reviews for One Thousand One Stories for the Road. Don't forget, we now have the Scarlet Pimpernel at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Check it out. It's a great story, and you'll like it. Until next Sunday night, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.